Good morning. Lovely to see you. My name is Malcolm Duncan. I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald. Thanks for coming to be with us this morning. This is uh, my third service of the morning. Uh, at, at 7 a.m. this morning, about 120, 130 of us or so stood at the top of uh, a very steep hill <laughs> called Moat Park Hill or something. Um, I didn't realize it was quite so steep. A couple of people asked if there was a defibrillator available at the top. <laughs> the normal Christian greeting on um, Easter morning or resurrection morning is, Christ is risen. And the response is, well, it's not really a mumble, no, it's uh, he is risen indeed. Uh, so Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And I was saying that to some people as they were coming up the, um, <laughs> this, the hill this morning. So one or two, I said, Christ is risen. And they were like, right. <laughs> a couple said, great, that's lovely, thank you. Some said, he is risen indeed. And I responded with hallelujah. But my favorite, I'm not going to name her. But there was one person who didn't like the steps. And as she came up the steps, I said, good morning. Christ is risen. And she said, he might be, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a pretty, a pretty good response. But anyway, that'll go in my little notebook. And then I did an 8.30 service. We had wonderful bacon rolls and sausages and eggs and all kinds of things back here. Thanks to the catering team that did that. Shall we show them our appreciation? <laughs> and then this evening at 6.30, we will be baptizing, as you've already heard, 15 people. I'm really looking forward to that. But this morning, I'd love you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn in it, please, um, to uh, John chapter 14, where there's just a little verse that I would like to reflect on with you together. John chapter 14. I read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Verse one, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I, not have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am there, you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know me. You know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, 
The one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Um, where is Mick? Mick, I made a mistake. Can you let him know that I meant a quarter past 12? In case the kids are all really excited about coming in at 12 o'clock. Um, I, 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 I made a mistake in my timings. Just Could somebody let him know that? Thank you. This um, chapter isn't, isn't a chapter that would normally be used at uh, an Easter service. But as I've been preparing for this morning, I've really felt drawn to it. And I felt drawn to one particular part of it. It's that section uh, from verse uh, 15 onwards, about, beg your pardon, verse 18 onwards. Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for his death. This is part of something called the farewell discourse. It's the conversation that he had with them the night before he was murdered. And he wants them to be prepared and ready for all that will lie ahead. In the days that followed what he said here, the disciples would find themselves watching their leader murdered, wondering what had happened. Some of them, all of them, in fact, would run away. They would be anxious. They'd be frightened. They would be uncertain. They would have hundreds and hundreds of questions. But Jesus wanted to give them reassurance and hope and courage and comfort. And in verse 18 of this passage, he says, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. I want to pause and reflect on the power of that little phrase with you this morning. Because I live, you also will live. There are obvious reasons for Christians celebrating resurrection, but I want to ask you a, a, a pretty fundamental question, those of you that are Christians this morning. What material difference does the resurrection make in your life? I asked that of the audience and the folk that were present this morning on the top of the hill. I don't mean what psychological difference. I don't mean what kind of intellectual ascent. I mean what physical, emotional, day-to-day -day difference does the resurrection make in your life? Because it's more than possible to go through your whole life as a follower of Jesus, which many of you are, assenting to the resurrection but not being changed by it. 
not allowing its reality to inveigle its way into the very depths of your soul and give you hope and courage and strength, to give you a sense of conviction and determination, to have a, a, a genuine difference in the way you live your daily life, the daily choices that you make. On this night, as Jesus was preparing his disciples for death, his death, he wanted them to understand what was going to happen. In verse 18, when he said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. There's an obvious reference there to the fact that he's already promised them and he promises them again in chapter 15 and chapter 16 that he will send them the Holy Spirit. A person who is part of the Godhead, exactly like Jesus, with the same character, the same attributes, the same love and tenderness and gentleness and power. But I think there's more than that in John chapter 16, verse 18. I think when Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He was referring not only to the Spirit's coming, but to his resurrection. An awful lot of people feel like orphans. There are folk in our congregation, perhaps sitting here today or joining us online in hospital beds. And it's hard to sing of resurrection life when you're fighting for years. It's hard to proclaim with joy and with hopefulness in your heart that you believe in resurrection when all around you is death. And some of the folk in our church family, some of you sitting here, are fighting some of the biggest battles that you will ever fight. And actually, whilst you're entering into worship and you're entering into thanksgiving and joy and celebration, deep down inside your souls, there's still this profound sense of struggle and fight. And that's okay. A Christianity that doesn't allow space for honesty and vulnerability is not a Christianity of the Bible. A Christianity that tells you that you have to pretend that everything is okay when you don't feel as if it's okay isn't the Christianity of the Bible. But what we discover in Scripture, what we discover in Jesus' words to his followers, to those that know him and love him, is this profoundly important promise, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then a little while later, he says, the world will not see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. What a promise. That's an, an earth-shattering, eternity-altering, life-transforming promise. Because I live, you will live also. So on resurrection morning in John chapter 20, when Mary went to the tomb and Jesus' body wasn't there and she ran back to her um, colleagues and friends, the other disciples, and told them that Christ wasn't there, something was beginning to happen. When Peter and John in John chapter 20 ran to the tomb and uh, John wants us to know that Peter might have been a better runner, but only because he led him. There's a bigger story behind that. And they get to the tomb and, and Peter goes in first and the grave clothes are crumpled up and lying in a pile and the, the face cloth that would have been placed over Jesus' face um, as a corpse is folded. Something has started to happen. There's an apocryphal story goes around that in Jewish tradition, when a master was leaving a table, he would fold his napkin to show that he was coming back. It's not true. 
The idea that Jesus folded the face napkin as a kind of symbol that he was going to come back isn't true. It's not part of Jewish culture anywhere. But this is. His resurrection wasn't a sudden, get me out of here. It wasn't, I can't breathe anymore. It wasn't, a, this is all getting claustrophobic and too much for me. His resurrection was a moment when his body, risen from the dead, removed the cloth from his face or whoever did it, whether it was him or an angel. It wasn't a panic. I don't need that anymore. It's done. This part of my ministry is complete. It is satisfied. What is it that was changed in that moment of resurrection? Why, why would a bunch of us stand at the top of Moat Park having almost had heart attacks to get there <laughs> and then come here and then come back again tonight? What is it about this resurrection that is so life transforming, so important that all over the world today, millions and millions of Christians will celebrate it? Well, in one word, everything. <laughs> that death and that life was an announcement that sin had been dealt with. That all that had separated you and me from the grace and the mercy and the goodness and the kindness and the compassion of God had been dealt with. It wasn't just that Satan had been dealt with, it was that the righteous demands of a holy God had been paid. He required a pure, spotless lamb and sacrifice that could take away the wrongdoings of all people. Jesus was that. When John, his cousin, saw him coming to be baptized, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cross is God's divine no to sin. It is God's divine no more of this to evil. We're told in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 3 to 15, that it is the nailing, the public disarming of the spectacle of the forces of darkness. But we're also told in those words that it is the utter and complete satisfaction of the righteous demands of a holy God. In Mark's gospel, the death of Jesus on Good Friday or uh, um, Monday, Thursday, depending on what chronology you follow, let's not get into that this morning. Um, is, a, is a description, Mark says this about the, the death of Jesus. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To whom was that ransom paid? The idea that that ransom could be paid to Satan fills me with dread, couldn't possibly be true. That Satan could demand something of God in order to set us free? Satan's not that powerful. The ransom was paid to God. The blood of his son was paid for you and for me. The bonds of fear and sin and death were broken by the death of Jesus Christ. The satisfied, the needs and demands of a holy God were satisfied by what happened on Good Friday. But had Jesus remained dead, then we would have been all, all people the most miserable. 
Had he not three days later broken the bonds of death, then God may have dealt with sin, but what about fear of death? What about fear of eternity? What about what comes next? What about those profound yearning, yawning, gnawing questions that human beings deal with every day? You see, the gospel is not only that Christ died for our sins, but that he rose again for our life. That when he rose from the dead three days later, something profoundly important was completed. So important that the Bible describes it as a new creation, as something new that has started and cannot be stopped. In the Jerusalem dirt 2,000 years ago, when Jesus rose from the dead, hope pushed through the earth like a green bud and nothing and no one can extinguish it. The seed of that resurrected Christ changes everything. Mary encountered him in the garden. Her story is told in John chapter 20. James and Peter encountered him, uh, Peter and John, I beg your pardon, encountered him in the garden. The story is told in John chapter 20. Timoth, uh, uh, Thomas encountered him in John chapter 20. The story is told. And they all moved from despondency to hope. And the only thing that brought them across that path from despondency to hope was an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Mary, when she heard him call her name. Peter and John, when they saw that the tomb was empty, Thomas took a little longer. I wonder why he wasn't there that morning when Jesus appeared to them. We don't know, but we just know that when they told him at the end of John 20 that they'd seen him, Thomas said, I don't care. Unless, I think he might have been from Belfast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Unless I put my finger in his hands and my fist in his side, I won't believe. You're not going to make me believe. That is a, a very Northern Ireland trait, don't you think? Or is it only me? I, I'm glad I haven't got my glasses on because you're all probably muttering, it's only you. <laughs> so a week later, Jesus appears to Thomas again and says, you wanted to put your hand in my, your finger in my hand, go ahead. You wanted to put your hand in my side, go ahead. And this man who's called Doubting Thomas becomes the first human being ever to describe Jesus as God. And says, my Lord and my God. And here's what Jesus says in the verse immediately after. You believe in me because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe in me even if they haven't. Which is probably most of us. Not many people see the physically resurrected Jesus. But believing in him moves you from despair and despondency to hope and life and possibility. It moves you from a moment when all is dark to a moment when all is light, from a moment when all is fear to a moment when all can be faith. 
Believing in Jesus and in his resurrection that he has defeated death doesn't necessarily change your circumstances, but it changes you. And therefore you can stand in any set of circumstances with courage and with conviction, even if that looks like one side of your face pouring with tears of despair and the other side pouring with tears of hope. The Bible tells us so much about the resurrection that I don't have time to go into all of it, but let me just highlight three aspects of why this is so important to us and why it really matters. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to explain to those to whom he is writing why the resurrection really matters, what happens in this moment of resurrection. And he says this, he defeated death by dying and by doing so released people from the fear of death. The resurrection is a message to everybody on the planet who will believe it. Death is not the end. For those who trust and believe in Jesus Christ, it is not the end of our stories. I look around this room and I see women and men. And I've only been here 11 months and I've already stood beside you as you've buried people that you've loved. I see others who have lost people in the darkest and saddest and most tragic of circumstances. Death is not the end of their story and it's not the end of your story. And we know that because of the resurrection. There's a song that we sing. We're gonna sing it at the end of this service. It has a wonderful line. It's a relatively new song to us. Death was arrested in Jesus's death and resurrection. When he rose again, Jesus' declaration was, death has no power, no authority, and no long-term control or dominion over all who belong to me. That's good news. That changes the way we handle sorrow. It doesn't mean that we don't sorrow. There's a facile, weak, obnoxious Christianity that doesn't give people permission to grieve and tries to paste onto their face a Cheshire grin that makes everything look fine. That's nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Mary and Martha trusted Jesus Christ for their, son, their brother Lazarus in John 11, but they still broke their heart. They still cried. You see, the resurrection doesn't only redeem death for us, it redeems grief for us. It redeems sorrow for us. It redeems fear for us. Because I live, you will live also. It gives us hope. I wonder how many of us today feel like our circumstances are dark or difficult or dangerous or uncertain. The Brown family feel that. Tracy and Joe Burroughs feel that. Diane Montgomery and her family feel that. There are many in our fellowship who are in uncertain times. But the resurrected Jesus comes and whispers into each of our hearts if he will let him on this resurrection day. Because I live, you will live also. Not only does it 
changed the way we approach death. It changes the way we approach sorrow. In the Old Testament, one of the psalmists said this, weeping lasts for a season, but joy comes in the morning. And thirdly, and lastly, and some of you think, is this a resurrection miracle? (laughs) Malcolm Duncan isn't preaching for a, a really long time. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul has been trying to encourage those that have been listening to him. And he takes the illustration of a tiny seed. I'm looking for something tiny. This will do. I can get down, I might not get back up. Honestly, the things you have to put up with. (laughs) And he holds an image before them of a seed. That's about the size of a seed. And he says, you would never think that a seed could produce something so powerful and beautiful. But that is what your body is. A dry, dusty old seed. And it will produce the most glorious thing. I sometimes laugh about this because in my frivolous moments with the Lord, and I think you're allowed them occasionally, I tell him that I have ordered a new body. Looks a bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not sure he'll grant that request. But I want you, you probably can't see that. Certainly on the camera you can't see it unless you zoom in. Uh, Most of you in the room can't see it. You might just be able to see it. it. It's the possibility I want to talk about. It's the beauty that comes from the buried body of Jesus that comes back as a resurrected body. But the possibility of it, the, the sheer wonder of it. John, writing as an old man to the church in Ephesus that he had led for some years, um, said something which was really beautiful and profound, I think. It said that when John was carried into Ephesus on a couch, and people would gather around him and just say, tell us the stories of Jesus. And he begins his general letter to them, 1 John chapter 1 verse 1, by saying, that which we have seen and which we have handled and which we have touched, we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. And it's clear that John had such a profoundly personal relationship with Jesus Christ that every time he thought of him, something happened in his soul. But later on in his letter, he says, beloved It does not yet appear what we shall be, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. But when we see him, we shall be like him. 
the possibility of it. You can keep the Arnie Schwarzenegger body to be so like Jesus. No eye has seen, Paul says, and no ear has heard, and no tongue can explain that which God has prepared for those who love him. The resurrection changes our approach to death. It changes our approach to sorrow and sadness. And it leaves us with the profoundest of possibilities that one day we will be exactly as God has intended us to be. Those sins that you struggle with, those habits that you want to kick, those bad attitudes that nobody else knows about, those doubts and questions and fears and anxieties, those yearnings and longings, those frustrations. One day, if you are in Christ, you will be perfect. The possibility of it, the beauty of it, the life that it brings. And that's why John points to that promise and says, anybody who has this hope purifies themselves. There are two ways that um, most pastors try to encourage their congregations into discipleship. One is finger wagging. God wants you to change. God wants you to change. God needs you to change. God needs you. He definitely needs you to change. God sees your sin. That kind of finger pointing, finger wagging, angry preacher. And you come to church and you leave and you always feel just a bit more useless on the way out. And then there is the pastor or the preacher or the teacher who gets a hold of this, God's gonna finish what he started in you. And the resurrection is the down payment. The spirit is your guarantee. God is going to do it. Sin doesn't get the last word in your life. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again. Those temporary things that restrict you aren't the defining of you. Don't let the last 10 years of somebody's life define 80 or 90 or 70 years of living. To watch somebody that you love die is hard. If they die suddenly, it's almost impossible. If they bring it upon themselves, there's no way that you can cope with it on your own. But don't let the manner of the death of the person that you love define their life. Don't let a last season where their outer woman or outer man wears away define their life. Let the inner reality of who Christ is in them and what he's doing in them define them. Let their face and their skin and their words and their lives and their forgetfulness and their loss and their increasing physical weakness become like translucent silk, like gossamer, through which the spirit of life and hope and grace shines because you can see that God will complete his work. What difference does resurrection make in your life, I asked 28 and a half minutes ago. 
every difference. You can face death with courage. You can face sorrow with honesty. And you can face the future with possibility rather than fear. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Not very long ago. My family were on holiday having a conversation about death. As you do. And as part of the conversation, we ended up talking about people that we'd lost. And in the middle of the conversation, a new addition to our family, whom I love very much, had listened for a while and leaned across the table and said, in a gentle voice, but we believe in resurrection. And therefore, all the unfinished things don't need to be said. Because that's the end of your story, if you are a Christian. Resurrection. But there is one thing that I need to say to you. We will all be resurrected, whether you follow Jesus Christ or not. Daniel chapter 12 Verse 3 says that those that follow Jesus Christ will be resurrected to eternal life and will shine like the stars in the universe if they have pointed others to, Christ, to God. But if you're not a Christian, your resurrection will be to eternal lostness, a continual awareness, not of overcoming death, but being consumed by it. not of overcoming sorrow, but being destroyed by it. And not of potential, but forever realizing that you missed what you could have become. That you limited your own life and your own destiny by your choices. This Resurrecting Sunday, I invite you to say yes to the resurrected King, Jesus Christ, so that death and sorrow can be transformed and you can walk in a new sense of expectation and hopefulness of the future. I can't make you do that, but I invite you to do it in Jesus' name. Let's pray. I thank you this morning, God of heaven and earth, that death has been defeated by your power and by your son, Jesus Christ. For those who have been consumed by it, whose lives have been dominated by it, who have walked in fear or anxiety or who have been absolutely beset by sorrow and sadness. Let the power of the resurrected Jesus bring life here today. Transform grief. 
transform despair, transform aloneness. For those who feel stuck, let potential and what could be flow from your heart into their lives. This Easter Sunday morning, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, online and in the room, I want to invite all of you to consider your relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you to join in Donald Elam. That's the last thing on my mind. But I have a couple of questions. If you are here today and you once walked with Jesus Christ and you've got lost in the maze of life, jaded by the church, let down by Christians, and you've heard of a Jesus who has broken the power of sin and death and sorrow and loss, who stands here this Easter day offering you life. If you would like to return to Jesus Christ online, drop us a line, uh, an email at pip at dundonaldelam.church. My colleague will pick it up and uh, be in touch with you. Here in the room, if you would like to recommit your life to Jesus, no one is looking. No better day than today, sister or brother. Just pop your hand up. I will see it and I will pray for you. No one's looking. It's a private moment. Let resurrection life flow into you today. The sense that there's somebody here and you were brought up very churchy, I think probably in a very strict religious background. It may have been a very strict, exclusive, brethren y type context. And you have felt very hurt by church, but Jesus offers you life today. He offers you a return. If, if you need to make a response to him, then just offer him your hand. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. My second question is to those of you who are not yet Christians. Is there anyone here today and you would like to follow Jesus Christ for the first time? You want to surrender your life to him? I don't know if there is. There might be. If you'd like to become a Christian, if you'd like to follow the resurrected Jesus, then indicate that to me by raising your hand, would you? Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We give you praise. Father, I want to thank you for all who are responding to you now and who have responded. I pray you would give grace and strength to each one, that they would know new life and new hope pouring into their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that on this Easter day, they would walk into life and hope and possibility in the powerful and glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.